she was so smart and so funny. And as she's being wheeled in for the CAT scan, she said, hey, sissy. That's what she called me, sissy. She said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. And oh, I my said, gosh. Oh. And I said, oh, bite your tongue. And I just laughed and she laughed and, she, you know. And then we're just waiting in the ER. We're just waiting for the results of this CAT scan. They had her pain under control. And this ER doctor walked in. And I mean, as soon as he walked in, I knew it was so much worse than yes. internal bleeding. I knew wow. that it was probably the worst news he had ever given as a doctor. Like he, he did not expect whatever it was he saw. And he didn't look at her. He would not look at her. He just looked at me. And he wouldn't say her name. And he said, she has tumors in her liver and lungs. Fear stops us from achieving our true greatness. Are you a professional woman who is feeling stuck, unmotivated, or burned out? Are you worried about your wellness? Are you letting fear stop you from crushing your goals? If you answered yes to any or all of these, then this is the podcast for you. Dr. Charmaine Gregory, night shift emergency physician, burnout thriver, and wellness champion, along with everyday heroes just like you, will explore how to face fear in our lives and emerge victoriously. Dr. Gregory here. Did you know that I'm on YouTube as well? You can find me at Charmaine Gregory, MD. See you there. Here. Hello, 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 Fearless Freedom Tribe. This is Dr. G, and we are back for another exciting episode of Fearless Freedom with Dr. G. And today we have Andrea Wilson Woods, and she is going to tell us all about herself and what she is up to. Take it away, Andrea. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Dr. G. I am honored. And before you hit record, we discussed knowing some of the same people. So again, I'm just so honored to be here. I am a patient advocate, an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. Awesome. Awesome. And so how did you get into those? I mean, that's quite a few things there. How did you become a patient advocate? <laughs> Well, they all relate. So when I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from college and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian. And I raised her all through my 20s and, and I was her legal guardian. And then one month after her 15th birthday, she was very unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. Okay. Now that was over 20 years ago. She lived 147 days with that diagnosis and it was devastating. I, um, I lost my, both my child and my sister when she died and she died just a few months after my 29th birthday. Wow. So the following year I was 30 years old and I was really just deep in my grief and was trying to find a way to channel it more productively because I got to the point where I was suicidal and I wanted to volunteer. Um, it was never my life's dream to start a nonprofit. <laughs> so I just wanted to volunteer. Um, but there wasn't a single organization in the U S 
doing anything in primary liver cancer, also known as hepatocellular carcinoma. So I started Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, and Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, advocacy, and Blue Fairy will turn 20 next month at the time of this Congratulations. recording. That's fantastic. Thank you. Wow. What a legacy. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope so. I hope she's proud. I'm, I'm positive. She is positive. <laughs> and so, you know, this is, it's interesting. I mean, it is, you know, again, I'm so sorry that you went through that, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, you got an opportunity to spend as much time with her as possible during those hundred plus days, because um, I think that is the the thing, you know, particularly as a patient, I'm sure that's the most important thing to be around those that you love during that time. So um, that's a blessing to be able to be part of that. And so right. tell me and, how and, um, prior, and prior before she got sick. So right, luckily, right, right. Of course, luckily yeah, so we had the seven years before to, she got sick. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's a unique situation for your um, sister to also be, you know, your your child, which is which is really neat. Um, and then for you to have taken on that responsibility at such a young age, I mean, most people, I mean, I guess people don't necessarily think of the twenties as being that young, but like it, it is still kind of young, you know, because you're, you're, that's usually the time when you're still trying to figure out exactly who you are, you know, yeah. like you're, you haven't really established that yet. And so, you know, to have to step up and take on responsibility of another another human being uh, and their well-being that's pre it's pretty incredible so you know that in and, of, in and of itself was a blessing then because then you were able to have that time with her you know beforehand mm -hmm. so now that, that's that's pretty cool and Thank so you. tell me you had to have some fear uh going into both of these situations so even when you first got custody of her there had to be some fear, right? Because again, you had just finished college or, you know, you're 21, you're, you know, this is the time that you're supposed to be like out there discovering who you are, et cetera, et cetera. Like what was the, what, how did you deal with the fear with becoming a, a parent? I think the biggest fear I had was financial because I wasn't financially stable. And also what happened was she came to visit me for a two week Christmas vacation that's what it was supposed to be. And at the time I was living with a boyfriend and he was a very abusive alcoholic and I was just starting to realize it. And then the day after Christmas, our mother called and said she did not want to be a mother anymore. And could I please take my sister? <laughs> okay. And, and my mother's life had really begun to unravel. She had been a really high functioning drug addict and until she wasn't anymore. And so I kind of always knew one day I would take custody of my sister. I just didn't expect that she would be so young and I would be so young. And then I would be in the place that I was in. And so my fear wasn't about becoming her parent because we were so close. Okay. It was more... And I was blissfully naive in that respect as well. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. But my fear was definitely financial. How am I going okay. to support her? And also, I'm in this abusive relationship. Um, this this man is physically abusive. 
how am I going to get out of this? And, you know, and I, and I did eventually in that relationship when he came home one night. Um, and to this day, I don't know. I hope, I hope her bedroom door was locked, but he, um, he took the door off. I don't know. Is it the hinges or whatever? I mean, he took the mm-hmm. door off the frame, actual frame. It wasn't just pulling the door down. He took it off the frame because I locked him out. And I was in this situation where I couldn't even call the police on him because they would have called social services and taken her away from me. Oh, and she had only been living with me for about four months at that point, but it was such a wake up call for me. I mean, I feel like she in many ways saved my life because I really wasn't thinking about my own safety, but I was thinking about hers. And so our relationship ended shortly after that. Okay. Wow. Yeah, no, that's is that's very that's a very scary moment. It if somebody so is that enraged that they can pull the door off the frame. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so thankfully you both got out of that without any any injuries or anything like that. So that was that was right. good. That was a blessing too. And it so was. tell me, how did you um so you you obviously found a way to make it work financially. Um, and then, um, was there any, was, I mean, she, so she's going into her teenage years and, you know, all the changes involved there. I mean, I'm, I have, <laughs> I have like one teenager and one that's going to be a teenager soon. So I kind of understand what that's about. And, um, there's fear involved in that. I, I don't know. Maybe you didn't have fear or perhaps because <laughs> like you said, you don't know what you don't know, but, um, what happened when, like, what was the big fear? What did you have to face when you found out the diagnosis? And how did you even find that out? Like, did she just get become yeah. jaundice one day or what happened? Like, how did you even figure it yeah. out? Well, can I address the teenage thing? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, seventh grade was the worst year of my childhood for me personally. And something similar happened with Adrian. So I... There were signs. There were signs. She was starting to change and act a little differently. I had moved us to Burbank from Hollywood. So I moved us to a better school district, a safer school district. And I there were just little indications that something was off with her. And what ended up happening was I had given her a week to clean her room. And she okay. didn't do it. And I was so mad. So mad. So finally, I just went in there. I was like, that's it. I'm just cleaning this room. And I found a suicide note and this was serious. This wasn't just this. It was planned. It was meticulous. It was thoughtful. And, and I confronted her about it when she got home. And of course she denied it. And then she got angry. And anyway, I got her into counseling immediately. And that was terrifying for me because I thought I was going to lose her, you know, and she was 12 years old. And and I I just thought, I thought I was going to lose her. And I thought, oh my gosh, did did I mess up this bad? Like, did did it, what did I not do right? Like what I, what I had not done. And, but like I said, there were signs that things were just really rough for her and she was having a hard time. And we were so fortunate that the first therapist she was matched with was amazing. And stayed okay, in our awesome. lives until the day she died. Wow. I mean, was with us the whole time. And and I still keep in touch with her. 
And that's how amazing this woman was. Wow. So, uh, so that was the first big scare. And, and then after about 18 months of therapy, I asked her if she wanted to keep going because she had kind of gotten over that hump. She was doing better and finally got through middle school and toward the end of middle school, things were turning around. And, and she was funny because she was like, yeah, I, I really like having someone to talk to. And and I felt good knowing she had someone else to talk to, you know, mm-hmm. that she could confide in. And, and so I, I just recommend that for parents. Like, it's okay. It's okay to have someone who's a professional who's outside of you. And, and we did do family therapy as well. So I would come in once a month as well, but mostly it was for her. So that was like a huge challenge that we faced. And and then as far as the diagnosis, I came home from work. I was a teacher to be on her schedule. And she actually went to high school from seven to two. And I taught from eight to three. So typically when I walked in the door, she was sitting at the kitchen table doing her homework. That was a rule in our house, homework first. That's right. And, it's a good rule. <laughs> that's right. It is a good rule. Homework first before the internet. <laughs> so, and and I walked in and I she was on the living room floor, curled up in a fetal position, saying she was in pain, crying. Okay. Yeah. And and this was a kid, she didn't cry. And so, and, and she volunteered to go to the doctor. I was like, what? And so mm. we, I took her, we turned around, we walked in to see her pediatrician and he didn't like what he saw. He sent us to the only hospital that's in Burbank. He sent us to the emergency room there. Okay. And based on her symptoms, they thought she might be bleeding internally. Now she had been to Coachella, which is an outdoor music festival. Oh yes, familiar Coachella. Yeah. Well, she had been to the. I think it was the very first one. This was two thousand. Oh wow! Mm. And to see her favorite band, Jane's Addiction. Okay. And she had been pressed up against these metal bars all day, and she had gone with my my boyfriend, different person who had mm. been in her life for a long time, who was also a musician. And he had said his ribs were bruised. So that's what led the doctors to believe, oh gosh, internal bleeding. They do a CAT scan and she was so smart and so funny. And as she's being wheeled in for the CAT scan, she said, hey, sissy. That's what she called me, sissy. She said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. Oh my gosh. And I said, oh, bite your tongue. And I just laughed and she laughed and, you know. And then we're just waiting in the ER. We're just waiting for the results of this CAT scan. They had her pain under control. And this ER doctor walked in. And I mean, as soon as he walked in, I knew it was so much worse than internal bleeding. I knew that it was probably the worst news he had ever given as a doctor. Like he, he did not expect whatever it was he saw. And he didn't look at her. He would not look at her. He just looked at me. And he wouldn't say her name. And he said, she has tumors in her liver and lungs. Like, I will never forget those words ever. Wow. And he said that they were not equipped to handle that situation because it was a hospital that didn't see pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. And they had arranged for an ambulance to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Okay. And he was sorry. And he walked out. And that, I mean, that was day one. And wow. we were in an ambulance, you know, in less than an hour Mm -hmm. and go on our way to children's hospital, which was just over the hill. Um, But, but I tell people that's how fast your life can change. I mean, it was about six hours from the time I came home to the time we got that news. 
Wow. And a week later, she was doing chemotherapy. Oh, my gosh. It was fast. It was fast. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, I have so many questions. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) is there any because, I mean, she is young. Like, yes, that is very unusual. I mean, did she have like. Was there like undetected hepatitis C in her system? Like, like what was, what was, did we find out what was the, the etiology of it or what? Oh, such a good question that most people don't ask. Um, yeah. When they saw what they did on her biopsy. So they did the biopsy on day three, they were stunned by what they saw. And because she had a typical, the most common type of primary liver cancer, which usually has an underlying liver disease which at that time, especially it's, it's different now, but at that time, primary liver cancer typically affected non-North American males over the age of 50. And here was a Caucasian female who had just turned 15, who had never even been outside the U S. So they were like, what is going on? So she was in recovery, but not awake yet. And they came out to me and they said, we're going to test her for hepatitis B and C, and you need to tell us why you have custody. And at that point, I hadn't even brought in the guardianship papers. I mean, things that happened so quickly. Oh, yeah. And I didn't, and I didn't know anything about hepatitis B and C. I knew hepatitis A because there had been an outbreak in her elementary school. Okay. (laughs) That's all all I knew. Yeah. And, and sure enough, they, they did the test and she had chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Oh my God. And based on the, the time she was born, the year she was born, um, and our mother and, our mother's addiction. Also, our mother was a nurse that they believe that she got both hippie and hipsy from our mother during childbirth. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I guess yeah. back then, I'm trying to think if we well, were hip, doing hippie shots because, oh because, no, no. Yeah. We no, probably they weren't doing hippie shots back then because I know now it it's standard, standard for babies it, to get it. They get, they get it at birth. And then they get it after month one. Well, it wasn't even standard of care in 1986 to test mothers for hip B. Wow. And I I confirmed this um, when I was researching my book. I confirmed this with my mother's OBGYN. I tracked him down. I knew he would remember my mother because she was a nurse and she was an older patient. She was a pain in the ass. Hope I can say that she was paying. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and, uh, and he confirmed that, you know, just, it wasn't standard of care yet in the mid eighties to oh, test wow. mothers. And so my mother hadn't been tested. Um, and of course, as you know, hepatitis yeah. C hadn't even been really identified yet. It was just right. called non-hip A and non-hip Yes, B. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in wow. fact, the doctor said when they got those results, they said, you have to get tested. You have well, the yeah. same mother. You've been taking care of her for almost seven years. And of course I did not heed that advice right away, but eventually I did. And um, I've never had hip C, but indeed I have been exposed to hip B. I cleared it and I have the natural antibodies and, um, and the American Red Cross during the beginning of COVID rejected my blood. Oh wow! (laughs) The antibodies. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, don't feel any way because I'm always anemic. So never take my blood. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I was finally not anemic. And right, right, my right. blood type, and I had totally, I just forgotten about it. I really had, and then I got a five-page letter saying, "Do you know?" Da 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 da. And I was like, "Oh, that's right, that's right. I can't get blood." <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That makes it was a, a perfect lot more storm. Sense. 
Yeah. yeah. Wow. That it was a, crazy. It was crazy. And she had no symptoms other than she had had some acid reflux. You know, she was kind of chewing Tums like they were candy. Mm-hmm. And my thought process as a parent was, well, I can only control what she eats at home. So I was right. like, stop eating tacos at school. I mean, just don't eat tacos at school. I was a little concerned, but not a lot concerned. And then the only other thing that had happened, which is not related to liver cancer specifically, but was definitely a sign that something was off in her body. She had not gotten her period in two months. And I thought she was pregnant. She had a very uh, serious boyfriend and mm-hmm. she assured me that they had not had sex. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that was it. That wow. those were the only symptoms she had. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's that's wow. That's incredible. Until that day. Yeah. Until, right, she, had until she had the pain. Wow. Yeah. And, and even then, and you'll appreciate this. She, it, you know, your liver doesn't really have pain receptors. No. So what had happened is her it's liver had gotten, yeah, it had gotten big enough that it was pressing on her diaphragm. And yeah. that's why she kept saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. It's because her diaphragm was, was, you know, being pressed upon by her liver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It It's, yeah, the body is pretty, pretty, pretty crazy yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. And then, of course, you know, she is, you know, like we don't, we typically don't like rush to image children. That's the other thing. And yeah. I, I don't know, like, I mean, I know we we have much more modalities now that are non-radio, you know, like non-radio, exactly. radio, radioactive, radioactive, I guess radioactive. Um, So, you know, that, that would probably like, perhaps they would have done... I mean, they probably still would have done a CAT scan back then, but like perhaps they would have done an ultrasound. Ultrasound would have shown, you know, that there's something going on with her liver and then that would have led to the, the you know, the remaining tests. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I still think that there's no way, there doesn't seem like there was any clear indicator that that was where things were headed. Like it just does not seem that way from what you're saying, which makes it even more like shocking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I'm grateful they did the CAT scan because her initial blood work, your your standard CBC was normal. Even her, you know, uh, chem panel, that, that, you know, comprehensive panel that does yeah. test the liver. Initially, her liver enzymes were normal. Okay. Her liver was actually in really great shape. She didn't have cirrhosis. She didn't have any jaundice until just days before she died. Okay. I mean, and and that they just attributed to her being very young and healthy otherwise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, wow. you know, yet, yet she had metastatic liver cancer. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Gee, my God. Yeah. I mean, when I saw when we were getting a second opinion and I finally got to see the images um, in her liver and her lungs, it looked like it was snowing in her lungs. Oh, wow. And the only reason I didn't burst into tears is because she, she and I were looking at those images at the same time together. Right. Right. Yeah. To be strong for her. So she isn't like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. So, wow. That is quite, quite a situation. Hey, it's Dr. G. And I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to this episode. I'm so honored to have you here with me. Did you know that I can help you to get your own podcast started? With my podcasting launch course for professionals, I walk you through everything you need to know about starting a podcast. 
I'm with you every step of the way from sign up to launching your show with five episodes ready to go. There's a done for you version that's also available. If you would just rather just do recordings and leave the behind the scenes work up to us, then that one is definitely for you. But either way, we've got your back here at Fearless Freedom with Dr. G. Oh, if you already have a show and you need production services, we have monthly plans available for you. So check out the links in the episode show notes for more information. Let's get back to the show. And then, so like, how, how did she deal with the diagnosis? Like, how was she doing with that? She was amazing. She was amazing. I don't know any adult and I include myself that would have handled it better than she did. It, wow. I can look back now and see that she made a very conscious decision sometime between that first and second round of chemotherapy that she was going to do everything she possibly could. Like she made some kind of bucket list. That's not what she called it. And she just decided to do everything she ever wanted to do and get it done because she seemed to know that this was it. And she didn't share that with me. Um, She did keep a private journal, which she had started before she ever got sick and kept writing in it. And it took me a few years to actually read read it. And sure, um, and sure, sure enough, she knew. She knew when she was getting worse. She knew when she was dying. Um, but she took that opportunity to do everything she'd always wanted to do. And she was able to do almost all of it. I mean, she met wow. her favorite rock star, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction. She met him twice. Oh, and nice. I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> it was all her. It was all her. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Wow. She sounds like she's pretty fearless. She, she really was. She, she was her, um, epitaph on her tombstone reads young spirit, old soul. Love it. She was. Wow. Wow. I could see why you were so inspired to start the organization. Oh my goodness. What a legacy. I mean, and so you have, so 20 years that this has been in existence. And so what, what do you offer? Like, what does the organization do? Tell us more, tell us more about that. Yeah. So we have, um, from the very beginning, very early on, we developed our patient education materials. We've always made sure they were free. We ship anywhere worldwide for free, which doctors love because they don't have to worry about a purchase order or anything like that. Um, there are multiple languages. We also have an online private community that it's HIPAA compliant. So it's not a Facebook group. Um, and what's interesting about the community is for every patient who signs up, a caregiver signs up and the caregivers often stay in the community after their loved one dies. It's, okay. it's incredible to see how supportive they are yeah. of each other. It, it really is. Um, and typically, since men are more prone to getting liver cancer, it is typically the wives who who are the caregivers. And 
and the support is incredible. Um, we also have our Love Your Liver. That's fairly new in the last couple of years. It's our public awareness campaign. And mm -hmm. that is a little bit more on the prevention side with liver disease and liver health. Um, we have an annual research award that we've had more than 10 years that we give out every year on my sister's birthday. And oh, so the- awesome. Yeah, so the award period usually opens this time of year in mid-November, okay. and um, and then we make the announcement in the spring and give it out on her birthday on April 8th. Oh, that is amazing. And so <laughs> if somebody wants to donate to um, your organization, how can they do that? They can just go to bluefairy.org, and that's B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y, and we spell fairy with an E because that is the way Adrian liked it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Love that. That's great. Awesome. And then, um, and so you have on your banner, you have Kansas University and you have a telephone number. So what, what is that? Tell us more about that. Sure. So Cancer University really came out of a need that I was seeing with my own advocacy group and others. So Cancer University is an online platform for cancer patients and caregivers. It's all cancers. Okay. Um, to educate, empower, and engage patients and caregivers to become advocates for themselves in order to improve outcomes, lower stress, and ultimately reduce cost. And it came about because, as I mentioned before, I was a teacher when I was raising Adrian. Later, I went back to school, got my master's, and became an adjunct professor. So that's my wheelhouse. That's where I'm super comfortable. I'm a certified coach as well. And you know, I know our patient education materials are fantastic and easy to understand, but that's the what and not the how. And okay. so I've been coaching patients and caregivers pro bono for more than a decade. And it started okay. really small and it started in only liver cancer. And then it just kind of grew to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, I need to copy myself. <laughs> you know, how, how do I scale <laughs> me? And also right. I just, I wasn't charging people and I don't want to charge people. And so I just kept trying to figure out a way of like, how can I, you know, how can I, you know, scale this? You know, there has to be a way because even when it's different cancers, you're often saying the same thing. Right. And you're right. often guiding people in the same way. And, and the whole point is really to empower people to make their own decisions. And so that's how Cancer University came about. So it is a for-profit, it's a health tech startup that I co-founded. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So you had to, um, you had to collaborate with some techies, huh? I did. I did. It's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. That's awesome. Awesome. And then, so you mentioned, so most of your time now is dedicated to that platform. Is that correct? Or are you still doing no, it's other a, things? It's, it's yeah, it's kind of 50, 50. So, okay. Okay. And cool. Still trying to squeeze in writing whenever I can. Yes. Yes. So you got to tell us, you told you, you alluded to your book. Mm -hmm. What, what was the, what's the book and tell us about that. So the book is uh, titled better off ball, the life in 147 days. And okay. so it's the story of uh, raising Adrian and, but it's told through the lens of her cancer journey. So for example, days are chapters. So day one okay. is chapter one. And it's written like a journal because while she was sick, I kept a daily medical diary. But as I mentioned before, she kept an online journal. And so by day three, every chapter opens with her point of view. So as you go through this journey, you 
see her point of view as a patient and my point of view as the caregiver and parent. Um, and I use flashbacks throughout the book to kind of fill in the, the seven years prior to this cancer diagnosis. Wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so where can people where can people get that book? It's available uh, wherever books are sold. And if you go to betteroffball.com, uh, you can actually, if you want to buy it from me, of course you can. Um, and it's also now on, on, on um, what is it called? Oh, it's on Kindle Unlimited now as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What, you know, so, I mean, Adrian has so many beautiful legacies. She's got the book, which she's able to have her voice be heard yeah. everywhere. And then the, um, the foundation where, you know, she's able to affect so many people, you yeah. know, so that's may, awesome. May I share a quick story? Yeah, Just, go ahead. So in the blue fairies community, um, a caregiver posted her husband after after two years of battling liver cancer. He he died just before Halloween, and she told the most touching story. She had just finished reading my book, and mm. they had had a very busy, active weekend. He had actually stopped treatment a year ago, and he just decided they were going to li live their best lives, and that's what they've yeah. been doing. They've been having a great time, and but he woke up on Monday morning, and his speech was garbled, and he was unsteady okay. on his feet. And because she had just finished reading my book, which is very, very detailed, I don't leave anything out. It truly is a medical memoir. She knew exactly what was wrong with him because I had the same experience with Adrian right toward the end. She knew he was losing oxygen. And so she called his hospice nurse and said, please come over. Something's wrong. It's his oxygen. And sure enough, his hospice nurse came over. His oxygen levels had dropped to 70% overnight. And, um, and he did make it uh, another few days to say goodbye to everybody. But I just, I felt so good. I was so sad yes, for her, yeah. but I felt so good that she knew exactly what to do. She knew right. not to call the ambulance. Right. She knew to call the hospice nurse and she was confident in her decision. And that made me feel really good. No, that's, that's, that's what's important. I mean, that's it. That's, that's incredible because, I mean, I've never had anybody who was in that position, but I just imagine like what I would want and I wouldn't want to be in the hospital. Nobody I wants wouldn't. To, yeah, right? I wouldn't. And that, I'm and, and this is from somebody who yeah. And the emergency department for for the is not the place. Like that is like the last place. <laughs> you know, like right? being home with the people that you love, you know, being able to like have your favorite things. I, I feel like that is way better. And so, yeah. yeah, no. So I am so happy that she was reading your book to be able to recognize <laughs> what to do and, you know, afforded him those, those days where he could be around, you know, that his favorite things versus yeah. in a place where there's beeping noises and people checking on you all the time. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He died in her arms. And, and if I had followed doctor's orders, Adrian would have been hooked up to a respirator and died in the hospital. And I didn't. And I took her home and she actually woke up, which shocked everybody. That's a great story that we probably don't have time for, but, and I took her home and she died at home, you know, surrounded in, in her bed, surrounded by people who loved her, not hooked That's up awesome. to anything. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. 
That is really if nothing else, I, I, I comfort myself on when I have bad days and I do, I comfort myself that I gave her a very, very good, peaceful death. Yes. Yes. It's, it's interesting because people usually don't talk about that. Right. But you right. know, it's like, it's really important. I mean, just as we talk about how we enter the world, it's kind of like, we should really talk about how we leave it, you know? Yes, <laughs> like, we should, because we're know, all going to die. Be, it shouldn't be messed up. Like, it shouldn't be, like, chaotic. It should be peaceful if we can control yeah. that. I mean, we can't always control that. But, yeah, if we can control that, if we can be, you know, with our favorite blanket and with our, you know, with our people around us and holding our holding hands of family and friends, I mean, that's optimal. Yeah. Yo, you're speaking my language. I'm so passionate about having these conversations. Really, I'm so passionate. I, I always tell people, have the death conversation before you ever get sick. Yes. Have that yes. conversation. Yes. My family doesn't like when I talk about it, though. Like, <laughs> Why are you so morbid, mom? I'm like, look, none of us are promised tomorrow. We need to have a conversation because I don't want you to have the burden of trying to make a decision about what yes. I would want. And I feel like that's not fair to you. And I'm telling you right now that what I don't want is all the things. If there's, you know, seemingly not a, a very positive outcome to happen, take me home. <laughs> take me yeah. home and let's hang out for those, you know, last hours or days or whatever it is. Because I feel like that to me is better than the opposite. Yeah. But you know, it's, again, it's a, it's a difficult conversation. It's a difficult conversation. I, I just, I appreciate that, you know, but I, it, I, I, I definitely applaud you, applaud you though, for, for having that kind of, that is a level of maturity that a lot of people don't get to, you know what I mean? Ever? <laughs> well, they, it's hard for them. Like, because, okay. It's even hard for people to even say the word cancer. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. I've had it where I've had to be that emergency physician who told a patient that this is likely cancer. Like I've had that and I've had family members tell me I can't say the C word to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So, you I, know what I, I mean? So if that. people can't even say the word, they can't even like wrap their mind around that part. I mean, the patients themselves usually are, they're pretty receptive. I mean, they're in shock, which is understandable, but they're pretty receptive to you being frank about what's going on. Right. Cause right. personally, I don't want people to beat around the bush with what's going on with me. Like, tell me what's the deal. Right. If I know the problem, I could try to figure out a solution if there is one. Whereas if you're like skirting the issue, that doesn't help me. It doesn't help me to, to, to figure out what the, the game plan is going to be. Yeah. But if people shut off completely though, when they hear that word, then you kind of have to, as the, as the doctor provide the information well before you say that word to ensure yeah. that you have, you know, engagement and listening. And then after that word, expect all the emotions, right? Expect that there's going to be shut down. There's going to be emotion because it is a life-changing thing, whether it is a situation where it's curable or not, it still is devastating. Does that word. You know, I have to share so. with you. So there was one time, well, we went to the ER, you know, many times, many times that summer, but there was only one other time that we saw that same ER doctor again. 
and in Burbank, like I said, one hospital, you get to know all the faces and right. the, the C word gets you a bump to the front of the line every single time. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. and there was only one other time we saw that same doctor again and he didn't speak to us. He avoided us. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. He now, couldn't deal with he, it. I, he, could he couldn't deal, with, deal it. with it. Yeah. He couldn't he deal, with it. deal with it. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is super hard to tell a child a diagnosis like that. It is very difficult. And just as, you know, if you're at a place where it's not a children's hospital, which is the majority of the hospitals in the United States, if you're at a place where it's not a children's hospital, number one, you are not equipped to deal with the emotion associated with that, yeah. relaying that information to the family, to the patient. And then you're also not equipped to deal with the aftermath of that. So caring for the yeah. patient afterwards and, you know, the complications that can occur. And so, you know, I really think that for him, the reason why he couldn't look at her is because he just didn't know how to deal with it. He might've had a 15 year old at home. Oh, you're and right. he yeah. was, I, you know, he yeah. was thinking, oh my God, this could be my son, my daughter. How can I look at this little girl and like tell her that this is, you know, the diagnosis is as such. So it could be that. And he was able to look at you because you're another adult. You didn't remind him of his own mortality, his children's mortality, perhaps. And the fact that he's now telling you, that she's mortal, yeah. that she's going to, she's going to, you know, she's going to have a rough go. And so I think that is more so. And then he's had to like be reminded of that situation, seeing her again. I just think he couldn't deal with it. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know it wasn't personal, but just. But it's tough, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like you, and, and also, you know, you're, you're talking about 20 something years ago, like there, you know, I went to, I went to medical school over 20 years ago. And I will say that, like, they were just at that point starting to do things that were helping you with communication with, pa with patients, like the soft skills. Right. And I don't know how old this person was, but like, you know, old school there was no, there was no teaching that stuff. Like they didn't teach the right. soft skills. So, you know, they don't, they don't, they, maybe he just didn't have that in his toolbox. He just didn't know yeah. what, what to do there. Yeah. This is what I'm, I'm extrapolating from our conversation. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? That's because like, I'm just thinking about, all right, well, how will we deal with that now? Like we're, yeah. you know, like we're more, I mean, it's still difficult, like for everybody, there's no question, but we will be looking at you in your, in your eyes we'll be holding your hand. We'll be sitting down at eye level. Like these are the things that we would do because that's what we do now. Yeah. So, you know, that's nice. So I'm super sorry that you had that experience. You know what I mean? But well, again, I, I, it, changed, it's, it's, I changed all their names in the book. So perfect. perfect. <laughs> but, but it, and the other thing too, it's like, it's, it's kind of like, um, like you mentioned the perfect storm in that, you know, HEP wasn't checked, you know, back in the day and like all these things for him, he probably didn't have the tools to deal yeah. with the, with delivering that kind of bad news to a child yeah. and then facing that same child later. Yeah. So it's nuts. It's nuts. But, um, yeah. Wow. 
Well, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I feel like yeah. I feel like you have you've touched my heart. I know that you've touched the hearts of those who are listening as well. Um, and I know it's not easy, even though the time has passed. It's still, you know, as you said, there's good days and bad days, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely sounds like she was a light and that, you know, just thinking about, you know, the good days, you know, before everything happened. And even, you know, when she, um, even when she was going through it, you know, I'm sure she had those days when she comes back and she says, Hey, I saw my favorite band member, you know, I forgot his name. <laughs> <so> sorry. <laughs> but, That's um, okay. yeah. All right. And then she's able to, to you know, do those things and, 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 and take those things off her list. I think, that that's just so incredible, absolutely incredible and magical. So yeah, thank you for it, sharing it that. Was. Yeah. Oh. And thanks for sharing the book and for everything that you're doing. I'm I, in case you've not been told that. Thank you. you oh, know? well, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I waited a long time to do the audiobook because I wanted to find someone for her voice. I wanted to have yeah. another narrator. I wish I could take credit for that idea, but it wasn't my idea, but it's a brilliant one. And I just waited and waited and, and I finally found the right person. And then we just had to like line up our schedules. And so, um, and so that was a really hard week in September where I went to, to Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville and we recorded the book. So to actually do the whole book again, you know, when I hadn't really, I hadn't done that in so long, you know. And um, so the audiobook will be out early next year in 2023. And, oh, awesome. and I'm really, I'm excited because it's, it's, it was so neat to kind of hear um, someone do Adrian's words and voice. And, and yeah. I just found kind of just the right person that had the, the maturity, but still had that youthful energy. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh yeah. So we'll definitely have to look out for that for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. This is such a great conversation. We are at that point in the show where we do our tradition and that is fill in the blanks. Are no you blank. ready? Are you ready for the fill I in the blanks? I don't know. Andrea? I didn't want to overprepare. So no, no, it's, it's better. It's better for spontaneous. It really okay. is. It really All better. Right. Yeah. All right. So the first one is if I am fearless, I will move forward anyway. Love it. Love it. The next one is, to me, fearless freedom means. Understanding that courage is not lack of fear. It's going back to what I just said. It's moving forward anyway. And that quote's attributed to like five different people. But I think people try to avoid fear and you you have to embrace it because it's, it's going to be there. That's truth. That is so true. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. And then the last one is my battle cry is. Ooh. Okay. There's a story behind this. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> my battle cry is Tanya Harding. Okay. <laughs> and so now you got to tell the story because you yeah. can't just drop that and just be like, oh, there's a story. <laughs> so, um, so. I come from a, a when I was a, I was a dancer for 17 years. I was a ballet dancer, and so my sisters as a baby saw that. I went to performing arts high school, and then in, in college I was an actress, and so she saw that also when she came to live with me. And in my 20s, I was still acting and directing, 
And so she knew that you'd never say good luck to actors or performers or dancers of any kind. You don't say good luck ever. So mm -hmm. dancers say mared, you know, um, actors say break a leg or whatever. Okay. So I was leaving one night to go to my show and it was, and it was the um, opening night of my show. And it was a show that I had written and directed and I'd never written a play before. So it was, it was a big deal. It was like a whole, you know, all consuming year of my life. And she came out, she followed me to the car because she didn't go with me, but she followed me to the car and she just looked me in the eye and she was, um, yeah, I guess she was about 12 and she did this whole karate chop motion and she was like, Tanya Harding. And <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I laughed so hard. And this was four years after the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan right, right, right. debacle. <laughs> Google it, young people, if you have no idea what oh, we're yes, talking about. Most of them aren't going to know who that is, but You're that's right. cool. <laughs> and, um, and I shared that with my actors. And going forward, I shared that with like, every performer I knew and everybody started saying it like everybody knew like Did and that was like karate moves first oh yeah we were just like, like Tanya Harding and <laughs> um and, and that's yeah that's the story in the book and so that that's just an example of her her wit and and so I would say yeah Tanya Harding that's my battle okay. cry all right I love it <laughs> that's fantastic well thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us here at the Fearless Film Tribe. We really appreciate you being so frank with your story. We really appreciate that. I know it's not easy to share, you know, things that are personal to you on any level. So again, thank you. And I know that you're going to continue to make an indelible mark on this world. Oh, Dr. G, thank you so much for having me and for the work you do.